Let us pray. Lord, help us walk your servant way, wherever love may lead, and bending low, forgetting self, each serve the other's need. In the name of Jesus, who served us all the way to the cross. Amen. Today we are continuing our current message series, Road Rules, and we're talking today about a job description. What we are doing in this series is to look at four events that are described in Matthew chapter 10. These events took place as Jesus and his disciples were making their way uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem. And while they were on the road, Jesus and his disciples had four different encounters with people, and Jesus turned each of those encounters into a powerful time of teaching. Now, just by way of review, let's go back to week number one. In week one, we heard Jesus say, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And we reminded you, at least I hope you reminded you and encouraged you, that just like a little child is totally and completely dependent upon his parents, we as Christ followers are also completely, totally dependent upon God's mercy. We will never, ever outgrow that dependence. We will never, ever outgrow the need for the grace of God. Now, last week, we should have remembered this because we actually ended up singing a song that said all things are possible. We heard Jesus say... All things are possible with God. And again, whenever you come to that point of your perceived impossibility, you know, thinking things like, I could never change, I could never be holy, I could never be faithful, I could never be consistent, I could never be successful, I could never let go of the past, I could never give up this sin or this habit or this indulgence. Whenever you come to that point of your impossibility, What you need to do is to take that next step forward toward the life that God is calling you to, because that's where the impossible becomes possible. All things are possible with God. Now, today we're going to take a look at the story about James and John and their rather ambitious request to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus. And we're going to learn something about what it really means to be really great And as this story began, as Nancy read it, Jesus is telling them some rather sobering, sad news. Uh, He is saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed by the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him, beat him, spit him, spit on him. They're going to kill him, and three days later, they're going to rise. Now, no sooner do these words this prediction of his own death, come out of his mouth, James and John walk up and say, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. After you die and have this resurrection stuff, after you get that nonsense out of the way, you know, when you set up your kingdom in heaven, could we have special places in your kingdom? Could we sit at one on your right hand, one on your left hand? And Jesus says, you guys don't know what you're asking. Are you willing to pay the price for those positions? And, of course, they said, uh-huh, we are. They must have been happy little campers, those little sons of Zebedee. And Jesus said, okay, but as my follower, if you want to sit there, you want those places, you are surely going to pay the price. But, he said, it's not up to me to decide who gets to sit on the right and the left. 
Now, as you heard Nancy read this, uh, the other disciples were kind of ticked off about this, that James and John would ask for these seats of honor. Now, if you, if you went back and you read all of Mark, you go back to read chapter 9, they'd already had a rather interesting discussion about authority. They'd already been arguing as they walked along the road, who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God? I mean, so they were already part of this. And now James and John aren't content with just arguing over who's going to be the greatest. They start stirring the pot again. It is at this point that Jesus takes his disciples, hauls them aside a little bit, and he begins to teach. He begins to give them a lesson on what it really means to be great. But before we get to that lesson, I want to ask you a question. Were James and John wrong to have asked for such a thing? Was it wrong for James and John to ask for those positions of authority? Now, in the previous chapter, they had been arguing about who is the greatest, but, you know, the answer here is, well, not exactly and not entirely. Uh, James and John were on the right track. They just needed a few attitude adjustments, if you will, a few tweaks here and there to fully hit the target. So we're going to take a look at this story very quickly together and see what we can observe about what James and John did right and what James and John did what was wrong. Now, I'm going to take you to verse 35, where it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known, by the way, as the sons of thunder. And it kind of reminds me of growing up being known as the Rat Pack. I have a, few, I have a feeling these two guys stirred things up a little bit in their life. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I'm going to stop there for a moment. I'm going to point out something, and here's kind of the first point. Misdirected ambition is often or usually unaware of bad timing. Now, think about this again. Jesus had just said, we're on our way to Jerusalem, and I am going to die a humiliating death. I mean, Jesus had to be in anguish over what was facing him, rightly so, and instead of picking up on Jesus' anguish, his disciples are jockeying for places of authority. And you know something, friends? We're, we're really the same. I mean, just like the disciples, we also make bad timing mistakes when our ambition causes us to look first at me and what I want rather than look at you first and what's best for you. You ever been a victim of bad timing? You know, when you were feeling really lousy and really down, and you just actually told somebody about how lousy and how down you felt, and they didn't even pay any attention to it. They just said, they, they just shot you off in another direction. And you probably looked at them and thought, what were you thinking? Didn't you listen to me at all? I mean, is it really all just about you? See, that's one of the differences between ambition and greatness. Greatness leads to empathy. Greatness leads to feeling for another person. It causes you to think, where is this person right now? Where is this person mentally and emotionally? What's best for these people right now? Is this the right time to talk about this matter? Or should I wait a little bit and let them take care of what's bothering them? Now, if we go on to verses 36 and 37, Jesus actually answers the question, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want to sit one at the right, one on the left, the other in your glory. Now, here I want, to, I want you to see a couple of things here. One is... Misdirected ambition often focuses on a job title rather than a job description. 
Now think about that. Misdirected ambition often focuses on a job title rather than a job description. I recorded a little video this morning that, that, that's on Facebook, and I asked that question. What's more important to you, your job title or your job description? Because there is a real big difference here. Now, we're going to go on, and I'm going to say this a little bit different. Another way of saying this is misdirected ambition often causes people to focus on their compensation rather than on their contribution. In other words, they're more interested in how much money they're going to make than in what it is that they're going to contribute to their job. Now, today is football Sunday. I mean, these are the days when people get all excited. They've got to get home in time to see the Cowboys play or, you know, they've got to go see the Saints play or, you know, I've got to see the Bears play, you know, whatever your favorite team is. But, you know, you see this kind of weird idea manifested in pro sports. They are often more interested in their job title than they are in their job description. They are more often uh, focused on their compensation rather than on their contribution. You know, some athletes uh, want to be the best paid at their position. Other people just want to be the best at their position. And amazingly, there have even been some players in professional sports of all kind who have yet to play a single down, swing a single bat, throw a single pitch, who have held out for more money. Now, some of you who follow football like I do that you know that the number one draft pick this last year was a man by the name of Andrew Luck from Stanford. They say he has the potential uh, to become one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history, and so far, so good if you kind of follow football. But can you imagine when he was drafted out of Stanford, as he was negotiating his contract with the Indianapolis Colts, he said, I want a guaranteed starting position. I want to be the highest paid player in this league. I want you to name me the league's most valuable player. And when my career is over, I want you to retire my number and promise me a feature spot in the Hall of Fame. Now, can you imagine him saying that? Well, some people could say, yeah, I could imagine a professional athlete saying that. But what would you think would be the response of the ownership of the team? Well, I got news for you. If I were the owner of the Indianapolis Colts and I heard that, I would say, how about you complete a few passes first? I mean, how about you win a few games first? And then maybe we'll talk about your Hall of Fame eligibility. Now, see, this is the mistake that James and John made. They had petitioned for a rather prestigious position in the kingdom, wanting to be among God's elite someday. And Jesus said, that's not how it works. Greatness is not found in your job title. You know, James sits at the right hand of God. John sits at the left hand of God. That, that's their business case. It's got nothing to do with your job title. It has to do with your job description. Jesus said, that's why you guys don't know what you're talking about. He said, can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And amazingly, these two guys said what? Yes, we can. Now here, I'm going to take you to the next point. Jesus is saying that greatness comes with a price. Greatness comes with a price. But I want us to give James and John a little bit of credit here. They, they said they could pay the price, and guess what? They both did pay the price. We haven't given them credit for that. I mean, John was boiled in oil. 
and he was exiled for the rest of his life to the island of Patmos. James was murdered by King Herod. So even though they were a little bit too focused on the job title, they did not waver in their allegiance to Jesus. So if we're kind of keeping score this morning, this is one in James and John's favor. They understood that those who aspire to greatness must be willing to pay the price. Reminds me of a story I heard not long ago as a guy was applying for a job and he asked his prospective boss, what does it take to move up in this company? And the boss said, well, you know, you realize, or we realize that you have a life outside of work, so we only expect our employees to work half days. The applicant said, really? <laughs> half days? Uh, which do you want me to work, morning or afternoon? And the boss said, no, I, that's not what I mean. I said half days. And there are 24 hours in each day. We only expect you to work half of them, 12. Now, that's a price many workers uh, simply aren't willing to pay. They're simply not willing to put in the extra hours it takes to do their job with excellence. And so the difference between greatness in this world and mediocrity in this world, or even the difference between greatness in the kingdom of God and mediocrity in the kingdom of God, is a willingness to pay the price. Now, the price always begins with time. Are you willing to put the time into it? It often involves some sort of a financial commitment. It usually requires doing without in some area, and it sometimes comes with a certain amount of pain. That's what Jesus would say. You want to sign up? you're going to sign up for the pain as well. That's what verses 39 and 40 said. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, I'm going to take you on to the next point, and it's this, that greatness works without a guarantee. Greatness works without a guarantee. Jesus said, it's not for me to decide who's going to sit in these spots. That's up to my Father, but I'm still calling you to follow and obey. Now, I would tell you, friends, that if, you are, if your motive is to achieve greatness through your job performance rather than through your job title, you're okay. If you're not worried about your job title in this world, but more interested in what your job description is, you're going to be okay. It works the same way in the kingdom of God. If you're worried a lot less about where you find your position in God's kingdom and more interested in what God has called you to do, your job description as a disciple, you'll be okay. I spent Monday and Tuesday down at Angola Prison. I interviewed pastors all for those two days, nearly 30 guys. And when I was in the main prison on Tuesday, I met with them two by two, and the two pastors that came in were not always the members of the same church. Sometimes it was the head pastor and the so-called assistant pastor. And when I had two guys in, both of them were assistants to the pastor in their fellowship. And I asked them, what do you think about being an assistant pastor? And the one guy said, well... It doesn't sound as good as being the head guy, does it? I said, maybe not. I said to the other guy, what do you think? He said, I live to serve my pastor. 
And he said, there's no way I want to be on that platform. It's not that I can't do it. He says, but I don't mind being behind the scenes and just doing what I'm asked to do. Now, I'm not going to judge the first guy because, you know, he very quickly agreed. <laughs> but on the surface, it sounded like he'd much rather be the head dude instead of the assistant dude, huh? The second guy, he liked exactly where he was. He knew what his calling was, and he knew his calling was to serve. Of course, when all this is happening, what happens? Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant. Do you remember something in this same chapter? Who else got indignant? Do you remember where we, a couple of weeks ago? That word indignant was used with somebody else. Remember when the disciples are shooing the children away? Who got indignant? Jesus got indignant. Now all of a sudden the disciples are indignant. That's kind of interesting, huh? That's another point, by the way, in James and John's favor. Even though their ambition was a little bit misdirected, misguided, a little off-center, they did not let the grumbling and griping and complaining of other people stop them from trying to achieve greatness. You know, a lot of people would rather just kind of stay with the group rather than to ever risk uh, being criticized by anybody, even when that group that they're with is known for all of its griping and complaining all the time. Because those people who really want to aspire to do more, to be greater in the kingdom of God, not to achieve heaven or anything, but because God's called them to be greater. You know, when you do that, what do they always say about the turtle? The turtle only gets in trouble when he sticks his neck out. It's only people who are out doing things that other people kind of like to sit on the sidelines and just take little pot shots at. I wish I could remember this quote. I think it was by Teddy Roosevelt, but he said, you know, it's far better to be out there in the battle and take your shots than to have to sit in the dim twilight with those other clowns who only just sit there in their dull little lives making fun of the people who are actually doing things. That's kind of a paraphrase of Teddy Roosevelt, but you kind of get the general idea. You know, you think about it, Jesus actually went through this himself. Jesus could have said, death, dying, crucifying, spit, nope, thanks. Just as soon stay here with the rest of the boys. But Jesus, when he moved forward in Mark chapter 6, he went back to his hometown. Goes back to his hometown, he preaches in the synagogue. And what do the people say when he preaches in his hometown church? Isn't that Mary's son? Isn't he the carpenter boy? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? Who does he think he is? And then the Bible says something really kind of strange. It said, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. They were such a stubborn group of people in that town. See, there comes a time when everybody who is a minister of Jesus within the body of Christ, and that's all of us, we need to get way beyond this groupthink mentality and say, I'm not going to identify myself with grumblers and complainers and all sorts people who want to just sit around and gripe and moan and fuss about everything. I aspire to do something more for the sake of Jesus. See, James and John, to their credit, did not let the fact that they were going to be criticized hold them back. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that somebody had actually come up to me and said, why do you waste all your time in prison with all of those morally bankrupt people. You may remember my response. <laughs> hey, it's the same thing I'm doing with you right now. 
You think you're not morally bankrupt? You think I'm already not morally bankrupt? Yeah. Criticism is not going to hold me back. should not hold any of God's disciples back. See, James and John were not completely right in seeking greatness, but they were not completely wrong. I mean, James and John may have been way out in left field, but guess what? The other disciples weren't even in the ballpark yet. They were still fiddling around with their keys in the parking lot. And at this point, Jesus calls the disciples together, and he gives them this next rule of the road. Now, the rule of the road is lest you become like little children. Remember, all things are possible with God. Now he's going to lay a third teaching on them. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I'm going to quote Genghis Khan here. You'll see his picture up here in a moment. Genghis Khan once said, and you can see that quote, A man's greatest work is to break his enemies, to take from them all the things that have been theirs, to hear the weeping of those who cherish them, to take their horses as his own, to hold in his arms the most desirable of their women. What do you think of that? See, that was Genghis Khan's definition of greatness. To dominate, conquer one's enemies. You know something? That's not too far from today's business model. Go to the next slide. I I heard a businessman not long ago on television say something like this. I can't be satisfied with anything less than 100% market share. I'm not in business just to make money, and I'm certainly not in business to make friends. I'm in business to crush the competition. In the business world, this is an attitude typically associated with greatness. But guess what? Jesus comes along into the secular world that you and I live in, and he brings a whole new way of thinking. He introduces a biblical way of thinking. Greatness is not determined by how many kingdoms you conquer. It is not achieved by how many people you rule. But here comes, that, here comes his teaching. Greatness is determined by how well you serve. That might be on the next screen. No, not quite. Leave it up there, though. See, Genghis Khan said that a man's greatest work is to break his enemies. The Bible teaches that a believer's greatest is to serve his enemies. There you've got it. Love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to them that hate you. And by the way, it's not just your enemies you should love and serve, it's also one another. Paul says here in Galatians, serve one another in love. Peter says, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve other people. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Now if we go to the next page, you probably see a picture of Winston Churchill. There you go. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. See, that's what Jesus is really saying to us today in this rule for the road. He's saying that God's purpose of your life, God's purpose of my life, involves serving other people. There's no other way to greatness, Jesus says, 
There is no other way to doing God's will in whatever area God calls you, whether he calls you to be a student or a mother, a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, or whether he calls you to be a pastor or a factory worker or to be retired or whatever it is, whatever, wherever God has called you to be, he has also called you to serve. Now, we often call that ministry, but I think sometimes we misuse that word ministry in church. We often call a, you know, what we often in the church call a ministry event, and I apologize for saying it this way, but sometimes what we call a ministry event is really nothing more than a self-serving event. We're really not there to serve other people in the name of Jesus. We're here to serve just ourselves. And I want you to understand something, you know, friends. Kingdom work, real honest-to-goodness ministry, is serving other people in the name of Jesus. That's what ministry is, serving other people in the name of Jesus. It has nothing to do with celebrity. Anyone can be great. Why? Because anybody can serve in the name of Jesus. One last famous person here, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King said you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second law of thermodynamics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. So here's today's road rule, friends. It goes simply this way. Whatever God has called you to do, Wherever God has called you to serve, serve. And that's where you will discover your greatness. With everybody that you encounter in this next week, I want you to, I want to plant a, a thought in your mind. Everybody you come into contact the rest of this week, ask yourself this question. God put this person in my life at this point in time so that I can do what? God has brought this person into my life so that I can do what? How can I serve them? How can I bless them? How can I encourage them in the name of Jesus? How can I minister to this person this week? What can I do to encourage them in the name of Jesus? Now, I don't often lay out any sorts of challenges per se, but I want to give you a seven-day challenge. And in fact, if you remind me in seven days to ask a few of you to report on what happened, we'll do that next Sunday. But in these next seven days, turn every encounter that you have with people into an opportunity for service and walk away from every encounter with those people having received more than you gave. And see, not only will you feel great, you will be great. Serve someone else this week in the name of Jesus. May God bless you as you do so.